Well, good morning. Welcome to our KCC online service. The title I've been given to speak on this morning is Called to Follow with a Pure Heart. Continuing our series in looking at being called to follow Jesus. But what is a pure heart? What does it mean to follow with a pure heart? It's maybe tempting to think that this means that we are always sticking to the rules, always doing the right thing, always saying the right thing, following the letter of the law. As if somehow this kind of religious behaviour will be credited to us as a pure heart. But in actual fact, as we see from this encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, that's precisely what it does not mean. And if we are putting all our effort and all our hope into this, then we are missing a pretty fundamental point. Have you ever heard the phrase, you are what you eat? It's commonly used to encourage us to eat well, to eat healthily. If we have a healthy diet, we're more likely to have a healthy body. It's a fairly common sense principle, and it's good advice, of course. Although admittedly not advice that we're always very good at following. On one occasion as a student, I rather foolishly took part in a challenge to eat a large number of hamburgers. I think there was about six or seven of us in the group, and between us we managed to polish off 54 hamburgers from a well-known fast food chain in one sitting. Certainly wouldn't recommend it, and I very much did not feel healthy afterwards. In our passage, the Pharisees are in effect taking the principle of you are what you eat and applying it not to the physical body, but to the spiritual person. The idea seems to be clean hands, clean heart. But they've got things badly the wrong way around. At the start of chapter 7, we see the Pharisees on the attack again. It wasn't the first occasion that Mark records their appearing on the scene to pick fault with Jesus and his disciples. Already in earlier chapters, we've seen them criticising Jesus for eating with sinners, criticising the disciples for not fasting, and again for picking corn on the Sabbath, which the Pharisees would have seen as work. They're obsessed with the letter of the law as they see it, and they're out to trip Jesus up at any opportunity. So it's probably not too surprising that we see them at it again here, nitpicking once more. The problem they have this time is that they've spotted the disciples eating food with unwashed hands. Verses 1 and 2, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who'd come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw that some of his disciples were eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, washing your hands before you eat is certainly not a bad thing. It's to be encouraged. Indeed, in these times of pandemic, we're constantly reminded about the importance of washing our hands thoroughly and often. We're given instructions to wash our hands for at least 20 seconds with soap and water. And I'm sure we've all seen posters or videos demonstrating good hand washing technique. Because we want to remove any harmful germs that we might have picked up on our hands before they work their way into our body and potentially make us unwell. All very sensible and, of course, advice that we should all be following. But that's not what the Pharisees are so worked up about here. They're not concerned for the physical well-being of the disciples, in case their hands might have germs on them and they might get sick. Rather, their issue is that the disciples haven't gone through the ritual of ceremonially washing their hands before they eat. Mark provides us with some explanation here. 
telling us that the Pharisees, and in fact all Jews, washed their hands in a particular way to ensure that they were ceremonially clean rather than just physically clean before they ate. And if you think that the hand-washing instructions that we are asked to follow these days are detailed, um, they're nothing compared to what this ritual involved. The Pharisaic belief was that when out and about, in the marketplace or elsewhere, the good Jewish citizen may inadvertently and unknowingly have come into contact with an unclean Gentile. Then, having become unclean themselves, almost like a physical germ on their hands, that defilement could be passed into the body when eating, defiling the whole person. Hence the need to ensure the hands were ceremonially washed uh, by following this elaborate ritual. Now, where did this come from? Well, Mark explains to us that this was a tradition of the elders. What does that mean? Well, the Jews followed the written law that was passed down by God to Moses. But as well as this, a whole host of other rules and religious practices had also been devised by the scribes and the Pharisees, and these had been orally passed down through the generations in addition to the written law. They'd become traditions. Now, we can quite often be quite harsh in our assessment of the Pharisees, can't we? We think of them as being very hypocritical, very self-righteous, and they were that. And Jesus himself reserves some of his most biting criticism for their hypocrisy and legalism. But many commentators would concede that a lot of this religious behaviour was, originally at least, born out of a genuine desire to honour God by obeying his law. And that many of the traditions of the elders had grown up over time that actually come from a place of trying to safeguard against any possibility of breaking God's law. So for example, the law given to Moses uh, did include a requirement for priests to ceremonially wash their hands before entering the tabernacle. That was part of the written law. It was something God told Moses to instruct the priests to do. But the oral traditions of the elders had extended this requirement to include all Jews, and at other times as well, uh, such as before eating. So this wasn't part of God's law that the disciples were breaking. It was just a man-made rule, albeit an arguably well-intentioned one. However, the pro real problem with, with this oral law is that over the years, over the generations, these traditions had really gained in importance to the point that at the time of Jesus, they had become of really equal importance to God's law in the eyes of the Pharisees. The human wisdom of these man-made rules had been elevated to a level on an equal footing with God's holy and perfect wisdom, at times perhaps even surpassing it. So the Pharisees quizzed Jesus on this breach of their rules. In verse 5 we read, So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus immediately turns this back on them and he calls them hypocrites. Jesus knows their motivation. They're spending so much time and effort trying to put on an appearance of godliness and finding fault with others for a perceived lack of godliness, but actually it's not God's law that's on their hearts at all. It's their own human rules, and so their actions have become just hollow, meaningless religious piety. Religion for religion's sake. And so Jesus answers them, and he says, 
Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips. They say that they love me. They claim to follow my commands, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their worship is meaningless. It's empty. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus says you've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Jesus is turning the attention away from the empty religious observance and focusing on the self-righteous legalistic hearts of the Pharisees. It's about their hearts. And his rebuke isn't finished there. He then takes it up a notch by pointing out that not only is their devotion to their traditions empty, but in many cases, it actually causes them to break the very law of God that they claim to uphold. In fact, they even deceitfully use their traditions to do exactly that for their own benefit. To make the point, Jesus gives us an example and gives them an example in verses 9 to 13, relating to the practice of something called korban. The korban was a tradition, a man-made tradition, whereby a person could declare their wealth as devoted to God. Again, it was a practice that would have had an appearance of godliness. However, they didn't actually give up that wealth. They could hold on to it, and when they died, it would then go to the temple. This was something the Pharisees could use to their advantage, because by declaring their wealth korban, devoted to God, it meant that they could continue to benefit from their money and their property, but not have to waste any of it on trivial, inconvenient little matters like financially supporting their own parents. Jesus, of course, sees through this deceitful hypocrisy and calls it out for what it is. He points to the direct command of God to honour your father and mother, one of the Ten Commandments given to Moses. Providing financial support when it was needed was a good way of honouring your elderly parents. But what the Pharisees were doing was very far from that. So they were actually going against, directly against the heart of God's law, the intent of God's law, and hiding behind a tradition of the elders to do so. And Jesus says in verse 13, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition. You make it void, these traditions that have been handed down, and you do many things like that. This was just one example. Jesus points out that there were many others. Thankfully in church today, certainly in KCC, uh, we don't have any traditions that we elevate above God's law. Or do we? Okay, so we don't ask people to wash their hands before they come into the church building. Well, not in non-pandemic times anyway. Things are maybe a bit different just now, of course. But certainly this wouldn't be done in a, in a ritualistic, ceremonial way. But are there other things that we traditionally do, inside and outside a church, maybe not wrong in themselves, but which have perhaps taken on more importance than they should. Maybe even to the point where we let them get in the way of the heart of God's word. They're man-made rules and expectations, but we treat them as though they're unbreakable. And we judge and criticize those who maybe don't live up to them. Do we fall into the trap of believing that church has to be done a certain way? Because that's the way we do it. That's the way it's always been done the format of the service, the way we act in church, how we worship, how we pray, how we do communion, how we do baptism. And that's just our church life. We could apply the same scrutiny to other areas of our lives as well. 
Now, there are elements of some of these things where the Bible does give us some instruction, and of course we should be following that. But is that always what we base our religious behaviour and criticism of others on? Or is it sometimes just based on our own personal preference, or even the traditions that we've grown up with? Now, we're not able to actually have church in the way that we normally would at the minute. It certainly looks a bit different. Uh, it perhaps feels a bit different. And maybe this is a good chance to think about, well, what actually are the important elements of church? And what things do we have going around church that are just man-made traditions? Or perhaps it's a chance to think about why we come to church at all. Is it about trying to put on an appearance of godliness? Or is it out of a heart that desires to know God more and grow in our relationship with him? And so having exposed the hypocrisy and the impurity of the Pharisees' hearts, Jesus then goes on to explain what really defiles a person. First of all, he addresses the crowd in verse 15 and he tells them, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. The human problem is not about what is on the outside coming in, Jesus says. It's about what is on the inside already, which shows itself by what comes out. This would have been quite a radical idea to the listening Jewish crowd. It goes against so much of what they've been taught throughout their lives, completely flipping the relationship between the internal and the external on its head. And the disciples are probably no exception. They're in the same boat. They've grown up with all these rules and regulations too. And they obviously can't quite get their heads around what Jesus is saying. They don't understand. And so later, when they're alone with Jesus, they ask him to explain. And we can really sense Jesus' frustration, can't we, uh, in verse 18 when he says, Are you so dull? Do you really not get it? Is it not obvious? Well then, let me go back to basics for you and explain some basic biology. Because what we eat is just food. It's physical. The processes are biological. We eat food, it goes into our bodies, we take from it the nutrients and the energy that we need, and then the rest passes out again. We need food, we need it to nourish our, our physical bodies, but it has no intrinsic moral or spiritual value or quality. What we eat can of course affect our, our physical heart, that muscle that pumps blood around our body, but it can't nourish our spiritual heart. And neither can it defile it. As Mark points out, there are no unclean foods in that sense. Although after eight hamburgers, I did feel a little bit unclean. Rather, Jesus says, is what's in you already, what's in your heart that counts. It's your heart that matters to God. That's why the rule keeping and the religious behaviour of the Pharisees was just hollow and empty. It was all about the external appearance when their hearts were actually far from God. This shouldn't really have been a completely new concept to the disciples. God himself had said as much in the past. In the book of Samuel in the Old Testament, we can read about the time when Samuel goes to anoint the person who God has chosen to be the new king of Israel from among the sons of Jesse. That person was, of course, David. But the first son, Samuel notices, is Eliab. And he must have been quite an impressive individual. In 1 Samuel 16, we read, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed one stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, 
Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God was not interested in the empty actions of the Pharisees, although they may have appeared impressive to others. And neither is he interested in our attempts to look good and holy, if that's all that they are. Rather, God looks at our hearts. So how do we know what state our heart is in? Well, it's shown by what comes out of it. Jesus says in verse 20, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and that's what defiles a person. If what comes out of, of our mouths and out of our actions uh, is evil and evil thoughts and evil actions, then it shows that there's a problem with our hearts. Elsewhere, Jesus uses the picture of a fruit tree to explain this a little bit further. In Luke chapter 6, he says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognised by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. When writing about this passage, Paul Tripp uses a really helpful illustration. He asks us to imagine that he has an apple tree in his back garden, but every year all it produces are dry, wrinkled, brown, pulpy, inedible apples. His wife doesn't really see the point of having an apple tree if you can't eat the apples, and she suggests that he cuts it down. However, instead, he goes out, cuts off all the bad apples, and in their place, nails on lots of nice, shiny, new red apples. From a distance, the tree looks great. But of course, there's a problem. As Paul Tripp writes, if a tree produces bad apples year after year, there's something drastically wrong with its system, down to its very roots. I won't solve the problem by stapling new apples onto the branches. Next spring, I'll have the same problem again. I'll not see a new crop of healthy apples because my solution had not gone to the heart of the problem. If the tree's roots remain unchanged, it will never produce good apples. If my heart is the source of my sin problem, then lasting change must always travel through the pathway of my heart. It is not enough to alter my behaviour or to change my circumstances. Christ transforms people by radically changing their hearts. We can try all we like to be a better person. We can strive to do the right things, say the right things, stick to the rules that we've made for ourselves and made for others. And from a distance, we may even take on an appearance of righteousness, of godliness. But that's not what God wants from us or for us. He wants our hearts. And the only way to bring about lasting change in our hearts is to allow Christ to transform us. We can't do it through our own religious behaviour or good works or through sheer willpower and we should stop trying. 
Our faith should be about relationship, not rules. And as we seek to follow God with a pure heart, we need to allow him to change us and then let that flow out in our words and our actions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the law that you've passed down and the commands that you've given us and help us to never neglect that. But Lord, let us see where we have built up our own uh, religion, our own rules, our own, re our own regulations, and we stick to them as if they are your law, when in fact they're just empty uh, re re religion. Father, help us to know what it means to have a pure heart. Uh, help us to allow you to come by your Holy Spirit and transform us to work in our hearts, and that then the fruit that comes out of our hearts uh, can be pure and meaningful. Help us to reflect on these things and uh, bring these things before you in prayer. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.